Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Apuha. With Tamson and Dan <clears throat> read the paper on Sunday, April 5th, 2020. Yeah, beautiful spring day. Beautiful spring day. We're out in our bikes and everybody's out. Everybody's out. And I said to you, it seems like we're, we're supposed to be in. Well, I don't know about that. But you're supposed to be socially distanced. It, when I say I don't know, I really mean I don't know. Because different people interpret the directives differently. Some people do think it means you should stay in. Clearly, because of the coronavirus. Right, but clearly most people, or a lot of people, don't see it that way. Well, I was just remarking that uh, it's, it's a beautiful day. It's a, a warm day yeah. for our area. And clearly that's bringing people out. Oh, yeah, there's there no question. There were more cars out. There were more motorcycles yeah. out. There were more people out yeah. than we've seen, you know, it was, in it looked, weeks. It looked like a normal it, day or more. Yeah. In terms of people out, and just it's funny because we're already seeing articles about how there's going to be a slow readjustment back to normal life when this is behind us because people will be so so cautious. And the answer to that is based on today, uh, no. Uh, within 20 minutes, everybody will be going full bore. I think uh, people will have a hard time staying socially distant yeah. as the weather continues. Unless to there's improve. a really strong reason to do it. So. Yeah. Uh, Halfway measures aren't going to work, but let but look, we're we're all in an experiment together. Yeah. And uh, should we start with uh, our latest movie recommendation? Yes. Okay. So sure. you know, well, you know, we see various things, and we don't recommend everything. By the way, I want people to know that you know sometimes we watch things that we don't recommend, but we do recommend mostly Martha, which is a movie that we first saw in two thousand one. It's a German film. Yes, subtitles. Uh, about a woman who's a slightly, well, I shouldn't say slightly, an obsessive chef, uh, an expert chef. Why did we watch this? What, last night? Yeah. Because uh, we heard the music and it got us going on it. And isn't that what Is happened? that what happened? Where did we hear the music? I don't know. I thought we heard it. Go, for some let, reason, we've been thinking about it for about a week or Let's something. explain why. Yeah. I, what do we mean by the music? The mo- Well, let me back half a step. Uh, so if I can go in order here. So it's about this woman who's an obsessive chef, and uh, she's solely focused on her work, but so much so that she drives everybody crazy, and her world gets turned upside down when she has to cope with taking custody of her niece. And uh, it's this—it's really a character study of her, and it's, it's a story of real humans in a real situation, which are serious, but at the same time played for great comic effect. It's very warm. It really draws you in. And the music really drew us into it. The music, uh, Paolo Conte. Paolo Conte, I mean, there's other music too, but this is how we first became acquainted with Paolo Conte, who uh, is difficult to describe. We were looking at Wikipedia. They describe Paolo Conte as an Italian whose compositions are evocative of Italian and Mediterranean sounds, as well as jazz music and South American atmosphere. So try to make something of that. We will play you something by uh, Paolo Conti at the end. In fact, the theme that's used in this movie to great effect. It's intoxicating music. And um, I will say we ran out, not only did we enjoy the movie years ago, but we ran out and bought Paolo Conti CDs. Hey. And we've enjoyed his music since. Yeah, he's uh, older at this point. He's in his 80s. Yes, we're all older since 2001. <laughs> I'm just putting him in perspective, Dino. Yeah. Right. I'm not try- trying to tell our life story. I see. Um, and, uh, but 
It's a good movie. It's a very good movie. Just, it doesn't matter what it's about, really. No. It's a, as you said, it's a character study. Yeah. And it's got a lot of under several underlying themes, not the least of which is differences in culture. Right. Differences in like German culture compared to Italian uh, culture right. and approach to life. Right. And uh, it it really um, it, resonates. It does, and, and you know, look, it it might have. Well, when I was watching it again last night, I said it's a little slower than I remembered. It's a little more thoughtful, a little less uh, action oriented. Takes a little while for the jokes to get going, which is all fine. But I just would prepare you for that. And it's foreign. And it's foreign in the sense it's that a different sensibility. It, it tells you know it tells a story. Not every little vignette goes anywhere. That's right. Uh, but it it, which is like life, yeah. really, yeah. and uh, it is obsessed with food. Yes. Okay, so it's not mostly Martha in the sense that it's about Martha Stewart. You know, no. don't get that idea. No. Uh, this, uh, but it is if you're a what you might call a a foodie. Yeah. Uh, you'll be very fascinated. You'll get a little something extra, but yeah. you don't have to be a foodie because I'm no. I'm not a foodie. You know what's to me. Was well, very gratifying. This is just personal. So we happened to be on the phone with our youngest Zeke last night, and we mentioned, "What are you guys up to?" So we saw mostly Martha. And he says, "Yeah, oh, I remember that movie." I said, "You saw that movie?" And he says, uh, "Yeah, I think I saw it with you guys." Uh, I said, "Really? What do you remember?" And he he immediately started describing the plot, and he said, "It has that uh, Paolo Conte music, and it's pretty good." And I'm saying to myself, uh, "Zeke was 13 then." We dragged this poor boy to the movies to see this film. Uh, I don't know that every 13 would go for it. It's, it's just gratifying that Zeke remembers it so fondly. And, uh, and, and it really was 20 got into years it. ago. And almost. it was 20 years. Every once in a while you think you had some effect on your children. You, you gotta, then you got to forget that in the next 10 seconds. But uh, that was nice. So that was fun. Because we, we have been also... we. Uh, have been food obsessed yeah. during this uh, oh, quarantine. Oh, that's true. That's true. I didn't think about uh, that. So, uh, well, that's it, why I pulled this article about groceries for you, Tamsin. Yes. This is a great article. It's in the opinion section of the uh, weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal. And uh, it's about John... Can you say it for me? <laughs> Upside down. <laughs> Katsimatidis. Katsimatidis, that's exactly okay. right. Um, who uh, is uh, a big figure in New York City. He is the supermarket uh, baron of New York City. He yeah, owns he's a, worth he, billions. And he owns 3.3 billion. He owns Gristidis and D'Agostino. And if you live in New York City, you know what that means, that he owns most every supermarket in New York City. So he's an interesting guy because he starts this when he's just a kid. You know, he buys his first grocery store when he's still an undergraduate at NYU. He's from an immigrant family. Uh, he worked as a busboy right. uh, in his early days. And so it's really the, one of those, um, you know, stories of self-made success. In fact, he even ran for mayor against de Blasio yeah. in New York City. He, well, he ran for the Republican nomination uh, to oppose de Blasio, and he lost. Oh, okay. Uh, but then the Republican candidate lost, too. So he was going nowhere. But he, he ran because he's a zillion bucks. Right. Um, and, he, you know, uh, but anyway, so the discussion of this uh, article uh, is, well, the headline was a coronavirus bull market for groceries. Right. And so it's talking about how, you know, um, shall we say, in a few days, the local supermarket was transformed from a mundane place every American took for granted into a shrine to human survival. Well, it's I think that really true. sums it up. Yeah. Okay, and um, 
Mr. C says, uh, there's no reason to panic about supplies. Uh, Only panic buying causes shortages. Okay. And uh, he says, usually you keep, uh, you know, maybe four rolls of toilet paper on hand. Now suddenly people feel they need 12, 24, 48, uh, whatever. Um, But the demand hasn't changed. We're still going to the bathroom the same. Well, Sadie likes to point out that, of course, normally you'd be going to the bathroom at work and using... That's a good point. Work toilet paper. All right, that's a good response. That's okay. a good response. But now you're using it at home. Uh, anyway, he, you know, is, interestingly kind of just is uh, a little bit um, disdaining the uh, this concept of shortages. Oh, no, yeah. And, and, and he's clearly right. I mean, the only issue with uh, panic buying or the only issue with shortages has to do whether the illness... Uh, causes uh, difficulties in the supply chain, uh, which is no one's really felt that that's happening yet. Uh, and he says he says he's pretty com- confident that there is there are no real shortages. Right. You know, it's there somewhere. It will get to the stores yeah, absolutely eventually. And I'm sure he knows. Yeah, and um, so you know, we were charmed by this partly because. Uh, in uh, our early days, we w- we went to the Red Apple, yeah. and he owned Red Apple stores, and those were pretty minimal stores. A couple of the interesting things he says um, are, this is going to change grocery stores, not forever, but this is going to cause a major change, right. which happens every few years with groceries, partly because in normal times, he says, 60% of new... of Food eaten in New York is made by restaurants. And he says, let me repeat No, 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 that. he doesn't say that. He says 60% of food dollars spent are on restaurants. No, he says 60% of the food eaten in New York is made by oh, restaurants. Really? He says that? I'm reading this. I thought it okay? was based on a dollar check. I guess not. I guess I'm wrong. Okay. Sixty. It also says... 60% of every dollar spent. Oh, well, I, I he, think... He makes both statements. Oh, well, one of them is wrong. Okay. <laughs> I think it's the second. I think it's the $60 dollar spent because you buy the same piece of fish in, in, the, in the restaurant, it's marked up, and that's what makes it 60%. But, but even so, it is an enormous percentage, whatever it is, whether the, you do it by volume or And dollars. this is where the real increase in business is coming to the supermarkets now. New Yorkers who seldom cook... Right. have had to take to their kitchens under lockdown. Some of them are making good food at home, really good food. And the question is, will that change people's and, habits? And of course, that's his dearest hope because then you're going to get that food from the supermarket. Yes, you know, the supermarket, the grocery business is a tough business. We've talked about yeah. this before in our podcast, all these different grocery right. stores and chains going out of business. Uh, so this is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, and uh, what else does he say that's uh, fun here? He says, will people continue to go out? Is this going to affect other businesses as well, like the movie business? Well, that's sad. Okay. Yeah, the people concerned and, about uh, that. And he says, uh, you know, you go to a movie, you don't know who you're sitting next to. Right. Which used to be the joy of it, you know, <laughs> having that communal experience. Yeah, right. And now he says, wouldn't you rather sit at home, even if you had to pay $30 for a Disney well, movie, wouldn't you rather stay yeah, at home to I, see it? I think it? he's wrong about that. That's kind of right. sad. Um, he also gives himself credit. This is for giving some advice to Cuomo. Oh, 
Governor Cuomo about dealing with President Trump. Yeah. He said, uh, like him or not, he is the president of the United States. You've got to decide he can move mountains for you if you're nice to him. You don't want to be nice to him? You're not going to get as many mountains. Oh, and that's the way Cuomo is dealing with him. I think he says, I think I had an effect yeah. on Cuomo. All right. um, so it's a, a fun article in um, the Wall Street Journal. He also mentions that what uh, is sold in the grocery store has changed dramatically over the time he's been in business. And he says that when he first started out, uh, 7%. Um, of sales were in produce. Oh, right. And that's kind of... 17% of what he sold was meat. Yeah. Okay? Now it's flip-flop. Flip-flop, it's yeah. Like, um, well, so fresh produce that is has, selling... has changed. I think the thing that really impressed me was that 60% figure. And it just... That is, you know... I mean, we, and arguably, we've all benefited from uh, eating at home, honestly, to some degree. I, I speak as someone who's not doing the cooking. But... Uh, that food's probably better for you. It's God knows it's cheaper. Uh, so that could be a permanent change. So certainly he hopes so. Well, um, well, um, we'll and see. we've been eating very, very well. We we haven't have access to, um, you know, great cooks in this house. Just listen, if I say so myself, <laughs> we do our no, no. We're doing well cooking, and uh, except mostly Martha makes the counter argument. Uh, in any event, uh, there was an article in the. Uh, Times, here's an apt headline. Staying sane when the world seems crazy, quote, stop and take a breath, the world will keep on spinning. And the article is particularly pitched to the news and media. Quote, it's easy to turn on the news and believe the world is ending. And the reason that is, is because the news uh, and other folks uh, engage in what's called, it's a hard word for me, catastrophizing or a pattern of thinking that jumps to the worst-case scenario. Uh, and suddenly discussion becomes black and white. Well, that's what causes people to pay attention. That's what causes right, interest. Right, Projection right. of how Extremes. many deaths. Yeah. Yes, it could be this many deaths. It could be that many deaths. Well, uh, or, or whatever other uh, implications you're talking about. And that becomes black and white, and that's imprinted in the way people think about things, and it causes folks to catastrophize. And they say catastrophizing is not the best way to think about things. It's not particularly useful. It's not particularly reliable. Uh, the ability to catastrophize, or at least to project how bad things can be, is useful, generally speaking. But sometimes it gets in the way of reality-based problems that need solving. And, you know, it goes on to describe, you know, it's, it's sort of like when you, uh, well, they, frankly, they use the toilet paper example. It's self-fulfilling prophecy. It's catastrophizing. People look and they say there's going to be a problem. Maybe there's a problem. It's possible there's going to be a problem. Suddenly you're out of toilet paper. Uh, It creates the problem itself, or at least contributes mightily to it. What they suggest instead is to counter anxiety. Anxiety makes us feel powerless. This is according to Dr. Stephen Stosny. And a sense of powerlessness then breeds fear that we won't be able to handle things, but we tend to exaggerate the severity of the threat and underestimate the ability to cope. So the advice in the article is take stock of your reality by asking yourself straightforward questions like what are my responsibilities to myself, my family, and the larger community? What reality-based problems do I need to solve today? 
And, you know, look, uh, different people use news in different ways. You're going to talk a minute about, you know, people look at the events today as apocalypse. Uh, that's one way to look at things. There was another article about uh, QVC, which I thought was kind of interesting. What's funny, I mean, QVC, of course, is the network where you it's constantly selling things all the time uh, on television. And what they're selling, uh, Joel, Joseph Siegel, the company's founder, described its appeal by saying they go into all these attractive details of products. It's on live, and there's no bad news on QVC. It's all this wonderful aspect of this product, this wonderful feature. It's all good. It's all positive. And now they're dealing with a situation that is obviously has a lot of negativity to it. They're not going to dwell on it. They still have to sell. So they give an example of someone trying to sell sunglasses. And, you know, sunglasses at a time that people generally aren't going out, aren't supposed to go out. How do you sell sunglasses? And they, they, they talk about how the woman selling the sunglasses is striving to come up with some positive message with some success. And she keeps going on it. And finally, she says, look, there's still going to be a lot more sunshine to come. The sun will come out right. tomorrow. And, and, and she sells out the sunglasses. So... Uh, you that's know what, what they're that, up against. Uh, yeah, QVC is just uh, is always going to sell, right? Uh, it's, it's always going to sell, but that's part of selling. You know, well, the point how is, hard is that? The point is that you can take a negative spin, you can take a positive spin, you can do whatever you want. All right, um, late breaking news. Okay. So go ahead, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, the signs uh, of the apocalypse. Yeah, 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 go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, well, I got a bunch of stuff here. That's uh, you know, it, well, we can start with the apocalypse if you want. Um, the idea that, uh, you know, this latest plague yeah. is a, you know, a sign of, uh, you know, a sign from God, a wake up call to faith, mm-hmm. a sign of God's coming judgment. And, uh, that's just interesting to me because, uh, for, you know, years, uh, I've been, you know, uh, teaching historical examples of this, uh, like the bubonic plague, the Black Death well, in the 14th century in Europe. But in connection with art. Yes, in connection with art. But, you know, it just uh, how do situations like this affect how people see the world? Right. You know, and usually when the 14th century, it had the result of, uh, you know, uh, creating some art. Some of it was uh, what we would call... Uh, you know, votive art. It's like, uh, you know, either thank yous to God for being spared yeah. or prayers to God f- to be spared. Okay. So it has that effect. It results in the building of more hospitals. It results in, results in the building of more uh, churches so that people can pray more either for the dead or again, to be spared death, etc. So it has a big effect on art and life. And uh, so there was an article in the New York Times, you know, saying that uh, Jeepers Creepers, 44% of likely voters in the United States see coronavirus as a pandemic and economic uh, meltdown and and wake up call, you know. Wake up call in a religious sense. Yeah, yeah. And I've been noticing, I told you, I've been noticing uh, many more ads on TV for the televangelists. Uh, who, uh, you know, are stepping in to, um, yeah, I guess, comfort people or comment on this, uh, etc. And, uh, you know, again, this is art that goes way back. I dragged you when we went to Pisa. <laughs> dragged me? I did drag you to see a, a particular fresco. Yeah. Um, 
in uh, Pisa, in the Campo Santo, which, uh, you know, illustrates uh, an aristocratic uh, group of fun-loving uh, uh, people out for a ride who come across plague victims and up in the corner um, this, so they see these victims these people rotting in, um, in corpses rotting in, in coffins in various stages of uh, decomposition and then there's, there's a monk in the background to saying you see this can happen to you you better straighten up and fly right so what happens is some people say oh my god this is the end. We've got to pray. We've got to live a good life. We've got to be more religious or God will come down on us. And other people say, uh, you know, let's party like it's 1999. We're all going to die. What the heck? Right. Um, and that's where you get like uh, Boccaccio. Um, it, you know, as I said, it's not unusual. Uh, in okay. fact, uh, that to, to see um, these uh, events in life as um, you know, predictions of the coming apocalypse. There's a famous print by Albrecht Durer of a um, pig with uh, something like eight feet. And uh, it, this, it's this crazy deformed pig that's born uh, in the late 15th century. And it was uh, considered, you know, as, as people were approaching the 1500 mark, it was like, um, again, the coming of the apocalypse. And so they saw things like the birth of this weird pig as a sign that uh, the apocalypse was coming. And Albrecht Durer uh, capitalized on that um, and sold zillions of prints of this weird pig. Uh, people couldn't resist, just like people can't resist turning on the news today uh, to see the latest of, of well, I mean, what look, terrible thing there, is There certainly happening. are legitimate reasons to turn on the news, but... Uh, so it, it, it's, you know... Uh, you know the question uh, is focusing on the negative and, and taking it to the extreme Get, you know, uh, of seeing it as... But as, as nothing as, as new as under the sun, yeah, no, is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's it's a natural uh, human you know, reaction. These, it, these the reactions... And, and, uh, one, and one day, these folks will be right, I guess, maybe. But Yeah, uh, maybe they are right, but... Uh, well, I'm not saying that. Uh, well, we don't know yet. Yes, okay. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, you know, is it uh, a sign of... Um, yeah. To take seriously... Anyway, so... As long as we're in the art world, right. uh, let's mention a few other interesting stories. And uh, one it comes to us uh, from the Netherlands, and uh, a Van Gogh painting was stolen mm -hmm. just recently on what would have been Van Gogh's 167th birthday. Oof. Okay, And it was stolen from a small museum... Uh, the Singer Laren Museum in Laren. Uh, it was part of an exhibition called The Mirror of the Soul. Okay, uh, so uh, people kind of slipped in, stole the painting, and slipped out. Yeah, the museum was closed. The museum was, was closed. closed. Right. And um, there's a couple weird things about this. Number one is it's not a typical Van Gogh. It's not uh, the Van Gogh with the bright colors mm -hmm. and uh, the um, obvious brushstroke and impasto uh, that uh, we really crave. It's an earlier painting. It's kind of a dark painting. It's, uh, you know, you don't look at it and say, wow, Van Gogh, I love it. And of course, we all love Van Gogh, right? So how are these guys going to sell this? I mean, 
Maybe it's easier, you know, whoever stole it. Totally why can, would you steal it? Because it's, it's all not you, typical. It's all you can get your hands on. They couldn't wait for them to get the you know, Van Gogh if, that they liked. But if they have some client who yeah, said, well, get me a Van Gogh, yeah. they're going to come back with this. And the client's going to go, what the heck is this? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want this. I'm who sorry. wants this? I don't know how you fence you these know, paintings. No, but, you know, unless you're some kind of uh, scholar, you're not really interested in all right. the early Van Goghs. They stole the wrong um, painting. Yes, they definitely did. And um, you like the line um, when the uh, director of the museum was asked about, um, what do you think? What do you think? Uh, is there any significance in the idea that this was stolen on his birthday? Yeah. And uh, the guy replied, it's just a strange coincidence. Synchronicity. That sometimes happens in life. That, that's, that's, that's the typical... And, um, and Nordic reaction. Nordic reaction is, is that what to you're saying? overreaction. Uh, I said, okay, otherwise. I'm just a little tip out there yeah. to the thieves. Yeah. Get your act together. Do a little <laughs> research um, before you uh, steal these things. All right, good. You know, it, obviously, if it's a famous Van Gogh, it's hard to sell because yeah, there is knows. that problem, right? Uh, but if it's, you know, well, look, you've got next. You've that got was a weird you, choice. You've weird got, choice. You've got a Bruegel in front of you. The Bruegel's uh... interesting article in uh, the uh, New York Magazine by Jerry Saltz, who is the art critic. Uh, for the New York Magazine, and he's been contemplating a painting by Peter Bruegel right. called Triumph of Death. So the fresco I was talking to you about in Pisa, also called Triumph of Death. It's a, mm, it's a very appealing title. Okay. No question and, about it. It's a winning title. Uh, it's a crazy painting. Yeah. So I urge you to uh, Google it if the, you have that facility. The Bruegel. Yeah. And, um, I'm looking at it. it. It looks unappealing. Yeah. Well, but it's fascinating in that Bruegel way because it's full of a, a zillion uh, depictions of crazy death, yeah. skeletons uh, doing this, that, and the other thing. It's really uh, kind of um, it, it obsessive in his usual way. And uh, it's an odd thing to contemplate in these dark times, but Saltz doesn't feel it's a, a dark contemplation. He says, rather, it is a confirmation of the fundamental structures of seeing, thinking, fearing, hoping, taking pleasure in the little comforts and intuiting things that are bigger than all of us, like viruses. I mean, to some extent, he's talking about uh, Bruegel's work as a whole and uh, the idea that he would do these, you know, Peasant scenes, yeah. the scenes of peasant life. Well, my idea of a Bruegel is a hundred figures that are falling down drunk or wrestling. I mean, that's basically it. And, you know, don't forget he was influenced by Hieronymus Bosch. Mm -hmm. Okay, some of his works have those strange figures. And clearly this is has a little bit of Bosch in it as well. Um, but uh, it's, you know, it's really kind of fascinating. Bruegel, I think, doesn't quite get his due. And, oh, let me give you a couple interesting lines. I know I'm running on here with art, but um, Saltz is, uh, is, is talking about how he's underappreciated, and he says, To me, Bruegel's Harvester's painting at the Met is the second best yellow painting in art history. What's a yellow painting? It's a painting with a lot of yellow in it, okay? <laughs> <laughs> After only Van Gogh. Well, there you okay? go. Okay. His jam-packed scenes and pictures of deeply human peasants 
can take many lifetimes uh, to piece well, together. Listen, my parents had a print of a Bruegel, as you all know, in their living room. Well, we are devo- devoted to Bruegel partly because of that. But God only knows why. I... <laughs> because it's about simple peasant life. Where did they get that? Do you think my parents were, went through a thousand paintings and said it's the Bruegel for us? That's the best yellow painting we have? I don't know. Now, you know that at a certain point they replace it with uh, an Impressionist painting. Did they? I don't remember. A, a print of an Impressionist painting. Yeah, well, yes. That was a change of heart. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, when they, I guess when they moved into that house... Yeah. Uh, in let me, um, let me tell you, it must have come with the house in the fifties. Yeah. It appealed. Yeah, and well, uh, maybe everyone was into Bruegel in the fifties. What do I know? But uh, it was there. It was part of my growing and, up. You know, we when we saw the the Bruegel room in the Kunsthistorisches Museum yeah. in Vienna, yeah. it was astounding. Yeah, and those paintings come across so differently in person. Yes. I think, than on the well, screen. Well, my parents, I think, uh, thought they might have had an original. but uh, There's nothing was, wrong, was... I think, with, uh, you know, um, endorsing the peasant life. All right. So here's, uh, here's a bright side of sports, okay? So baseball, we're all sad we're missing baseball, and there was even an article in the journal about Yes, we're it. all sad <laughs> we're missing There actually baseball. was an article about it. I am still appalled that uh, when we came across the offering of last year's highlight games yeah. in the MLB, yeah. that you were so thrilled. <laughs> I mean, Amazon's got them. Amazon's playing old, old baseball games. Didn't you see those once? <laughs> Why would you want to see those again? Well, listen, there's a great You appeal. know how it ha- ends. There's different views on this. There are, there are people you'll be happy to know who were calling into the sports station saying, you know something, I realize now that I have less anxiety that I had uh, last year because the Mets used to drive me crazy. And it's nice not to be able not to have to deal with the Mets' failures every day. That's true. That's true. That's Although, you know, um, your mood yeah. rises and falls. Well, with the Mets. With the fortunes of the Mets. Which is too bad because they tend Which to lose. Which is too bad. <laughs> I know lots of, when I was growing up, it was always, my father was the stock market. Yeah. You know, and uh, so here, stock market's still causing havoc, but at least yeah, the, Mets the Mets are not. Right. But here, here's some interesting news that's, that's good news in a sense for some teams. Um Headline in the journal, Short Season Gives Underdogs a Shot. And uh, and the simple the principle simply is this. There's a thought possibly that the baseball season will start at the end of July. If the baseball season starts at the end of July, it is end of July, it's a shortened season, right? Maybe instead of 160 games, they'd play, call it 75, maybe 70. And that increases the probability of underdog teams making the playoffs. The reason being that in a smaller sample, that the you know things don't play out the way they ought to, and you have a better chance. A lesser team is a better chance of prevailing. Um, uh, and they actually did this by simulating the season if it started in at the end of July and just running through the whole season with a computer with the probabilities of teams winning or losing in the actual schedule. Let's say it played out that way, and it had a profound difference in the way the likelihoods go. In other words, right now the the Yankees have. A or, or, or the Dodgers is the example I use. The Dodgers have the greatest likelihood of making the playoffs. It's ninety four percent if you played one hundred sixty two games. If you only play seventy games, the Dodgers' chance of making the playoffs goes down to seventy because right. there's so much more improbability in the shorter sample. Correspondingly, the lesser teams it goes up 
So there are teams that had a 15% chance suddenly have a 30% chance. So they, do they say what chance the Mets have? They don't give it, but obviously the Mets are in the lesser teams. They obviously go up. And the, the point is... Okay, just, so the point is what? The point, you understand the principle, though. It makes perfect sense. I do sense. understand the principle, but this is gives me a gleam of hope. That what? That the Mets will be in Well, the if we can predict this all with computers, we won't have to really actually have the it's games. It's not that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? That's, I don't think that's the point so of the article. So through, you know, I, we'll, we'll just have to see. If the computers are right, then uh, this is going to kill sports think it, altogether. The, something that gives the Mets, it, it probably doubles the Mets' chances of making the playoffs. They probably go from 15 to 30% chance of making the playoffs. So, you, so yeah, but uh, the question is, do they make the playoffs? Well, that, that's why we have to tune in. So, uh, there you go. I thought that was good news. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of thinking we don't have to tune in. All right, but, so what's yeah. the news from Finland, Tamsin? The <laughs> news from Finland is um, that uh, the Finns have this thing called pants drunk. Yes. You know, so now that we're all stuck inside, we can get pants drunk, which means you do your drinking in your underwear. That's right. That's the okay. way it's supposed to be done. Yeah. Um, I, I have a feeling a lot of people drink in their underwear anyway, um, but apparently it's celebrated in Finland. Yeah. In fact, a guy has written a whole book about it, and it's been translated into 13 languages. Well, that's the you way know, you get comfortable. Including English, Polish, Italian, Spanish, Russian, Korean. And they have a picture of a guy in his underwear drinking. And let me ask you this. This is a curveball you may not know. Is this just a guy thing or just women in their underwear too? Just out of curiosity. For, in Finland, apparently it's both. They, because they have emojis. that They have pants drunk emojis. Oh, really? And there's a guy in um, um, briefs. Yeah. You know, like tidy whities, but right. they're gray. Right. I guess because they don't wash as much. I don't know. Um, and um, and the woman is, uh, you know, in underwear as well. Now, the guy who wrote the book says uh, the American version of this is wearing sweatpants and shorts. Right. That doesn't count. No. You've got to be in your underwear. You've got to be in your underwear. And uh, he says it's probably because the Finns are more used to being naked in the sauna every day growing up yeah and he hopes this will have this uh you know if we learn how to do this it will loosen americans up a little bit i don't know all right well that that was interesting um there are a couple of uh, obituaries will come i can't say i've ever done any serious drinking in my underwear I'll but pass. maybe you have uh, I, i'm my mom on the subject there are two obituaries which have a certain uh, parallel uh ellis marcellus died as did bucky pizzarelli and um in both cases, these are folks who were wonderful jazz musicians who had excellent reputations within the jazz scene who became much more prominent with and, in a sense, through their sons. Uh, Ellis Marsalis uh, was a highly respected jazz uh, pianist in New Orleans, but a little bit on the outside because he was sort of a uh, formalist. He believed in what was called straight-ahead jazz, and which was not necessarily the most popular mode at the time. His sons, uh, he had a number of sons, but pr- uh, primarily we're going to focus on Branford and Winton uh, Marsalis, who are great musicians and very well known. And with their burgeoning reputations, uh, Ellis Marsalis became even more prominent. I mean, he had a lot of uh, well, students were, in New Orleans. He was well respected. In New Orleans, I mean, he... But he, he develops more celebrity. That's true. Right. Um, yeah, I should say... By virtue of uh, the success of his sons. Right. His students in New Orleans uh, included Harry Connick, actually. Uh-huh. Um, but in any event, yes, he becomes much more prominent and he's inducted in the Jazz Hall of Fame with his sons. 
Uh, and uh, it's a similar story with Bucky Pizzarelli, in a sense. Bucky Pizzarelli, always a great, uh, a great guitarist, and he's called the Sideman. Uh, and he's been in bands, and he was in the John, Johnny Carson standard band for this night show for years. And then at a certain point in the early 70s, he left the band, and he started to gain a little more promise as he was performing in smaller groups, sometimes by himself. But where he really took off in terms, as you say, celebrity, is in 1980, he started performing with his son, John Pizzarelli, who is a guitarist uh, like Bucky, uh, plays a similar instrument, seven-string guitar, um, and, uh, and sings. And uh, Bucky Pizzarelli, you know, through dealing, through, you know, working with famous people like uh, Stefan Grappelli, uh and Zoot Sims, but even more so by constantly being mentioned by and playing with his son, became quite famous in his later years. He passed away at 94. So that was sort of a parallel with two great jazz figures, um, which is kind of interesting, I thought. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was another article about fathers and sons, which I also thought was interesting. I don't know what we make of it. We don't have to make much of it. Um, but there uh, is an article called When Speed Runs in the Family, about a father and son who set out and broke the world record for combined marathon time. Uh, they both entered the same marathon, uh, and uh, they broke the record based on adding their two times together. Uh, and so they were obviously had good times. What's interesting about it is that the father, whose name is Tommy Hughes, uh, at the age of 59, was faster than the son, who's Ian Hughes, who's 34 years old. He was four, was it four minutes faster? I think that was it. Uh, yeah, four minutes faster in the marathon, uh, which is, you know, a decent amount. Uh, they're both decent runners, obviously. You wouldn't necessarily expect the one 25 years older to be faster. Uh, and they tried to examine such ways a little more closely to see what they could learn. They went through quite a lot of testing, uh, and they found, number one, that both father and son uh, had similar uh, physiologies in the sense that they had uh, a high uh, VO2 capacity, high capacity to process oxygen and to deal with, with okay. breathing in an efficient way. Yeah. Uh, so what was the difference? The difference is, and the reason that the older uh, Hughes prevailed was that he was able to uh, uh, tolerate more discomfort. In other words, he was... He was uh, running at 90% of his maximal capacity, which uh, can only be done at a great deal of discomfort when his son was only doing it 85%. Uh, whether that has something to do with the way people age or think about things, or maybe that's just a personality of father, I don't know. But that's a difference between them, is your ability to deal with take... discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. The same physiology. So in any event, uh, well, it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, but in any event, it doesn't compare with your final story, which has no, to I'm do just, with... I'm sitting here wondering uh, how your sons are going to, uh, you know, affect your celebrity <laughs> in the future. It can Assuming only go... there's still time. It can only go up. Uh, yeah, well, there is so, time. There's you know, time, yeah. Um, That's, that, well, think about that. I thought you were going to tell me how they were how much discomfort they were handling and whether we can do something about that. But, I think no one can handle as much discomfort as you. Thank you very much. You, you. One day I'll get my due for that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think discomfort is your middle name. Yeah. You seem to delight in that. I handle it uh, and I dish it out, I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's no doubt about that. Uh, anyway, so, we're, you know, we're talking about a bunch of these businesses. You know, it, you know it's been... Uh, 
It's been very sad how many businesses are negatively yeah. affected right. uh, by the coronavirus. Um, but uh, then we're seeing other uh, businesses who are clearly thriving, like the grocery business, right. to a large extent. And another one is apparently um, the um, what do you, how, the, how would you term this? The diaper the business. The cloth diaper cloth business. Cloth diaper business. That's not a okay. It's not a remote so, phrase. There you uh, go. No, I just, you know, um, you can't say the diaper business. Uh, it's the cloth diaper yes, business. Yes, the nappy business. And uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal about the nappy lady. Yes. And uh, she has a business in the UK, obviously, and it's been exploding because... <sighs> it's not the wrong, right word, but go ahead. Well, yeah. you don't like to see that in a diaper, no. an explosion. <laughs> no. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> people being worried i mean it's one thing to run out of toilet paper another thing to run out of diapers that's right uh then you're in deep doo-doo i'm glad you're cracking yourself up <laughs> anyway she had a nice business going but ever since uh, there's this fear what you know what if they you know run out of the disposable diapers right. and of course you know there's always been not always but uh, a lot of people have been worried about what uh disposable disposable diapers are doing to the environment uh etc no but, it's a real um, business but it's it's taken off now it's uh, as you said exploded and um uh, and so uh so this is really and i went to her website yeah. and uh they are limiting access to uh, they are only taking orders during certain hours right. um etc because they cannot handle all this business and their suppliers are you know, many of them are kind of small operations, right. They're not so they can't really rise to the challenge. Um, so, uh, you know, um, you know, she is uh, toughing it out. And uh, she says it's, it's funny because uh, before coronavirus, uh, there were a lot of people who were concerned. What are your cloth diapers made of? Is it organic cotton? You know, and the, the coverings that go over the diapers, you know, wh where is that material sourced, etc. She says, in the last two weeks, she hasn't heard any of that. No one has given a monkey's if it's organic cotton. They just want it to be cheap and beyond their baby's bottom. Oh, there you go. And we were talking about that. That's a great phrase we'll be using from now on. Monkeys. No one gives a, a monkey's. monkeys. You can only yeah. guess what the word after monkeys is understood to be. Understood. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we're going to go do some more eating. Right. Because that's our main sport and at this point besides uh, watching TV. Again, we recommend that... Mostly Martha. Right. And we'll leave you with uh, the music from Paolo Conte, uh, Via Con Me. Uh, and until next Which week. Which is a fun tune. Yes. It's, 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 it's great. Uh, so this is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Tamsin and Dan. Read the paper. See you next week. Via, via. Vieni via di qui. Niente più ti lega questi luoghi neanche questi fiori azzurri via via neanche questo tempo grigio pieno di musica e di uomini che ti son piaciuti it's wonderful it's wonderful it's wonderful good luck my baby it's wonderful it's wonderful it's wonderful I'd remove you chips chips da ti do di do ci boom ci boom boom Dati do di do ci boom ci boom boom Dati do di do Via, via, vieni via con me Entra in questo amore buio 
non perderti per niente al mondo via via non perderti per niente al mondo lo spettacolo d'arte varia di uno innamorato di te yeah. it's wonderful it's wonderful it's wonderful good luck my baby it's wonderful it's wonderful it's wonderful I dream of you chips 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 Dati do di do chi boom chi boom boom Dati do di Via via vieni via con me E tra in questo amore buio pieno di uomini Via, via, e tre fatti un bagno caldo, c'è un accappatoio azzurro, fuori piove un mondo freddo, eh? It's wonderful, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, good luck my baby, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, I dream of you, chips, chips, dati do di do, chibum, chibum, dati do di do, chibum, chibum, dati do di do.